looking forward to the birth of your first child is always an amazing experience. And it's, it's fun to watch now on the other side of that, having had four children, uh, seeing the new parents and seeing them anticipate and get ready. And, uh, and then as they experience delivery and then bring the child home and everything that changes for them is a neat experience and one to watch. And now it's beautiful to see the baptism as well. Uh, the moms, of course, have a mixture of excitement along with a healthy dose of fear and uncertainty uh, of how much pain there is going to be in delivery and also all the changes that they're going through. Uh, there are books like What to Expect When You're Expecting. I'm sure majority of the women, the mothers here have read that or skimmed through it. Um, but if you haven't seen the aisles of bookstores recently, uh, you may not know that there's a lot of books out there for fathers as well. Um, I pulled out a few that I saw on Amazon. Uh, Pickles and Ice Cream, A Father's Guide to Pregnancy. Caveman's Guide to Baby's First Year, Early Fatherhood for the Modern Hunter-Gatherer. I wish I'd had that one. That sounds cool. Uh, checklists for the New Dad. The Man's Survival Guide to Pregnancy. Crouching Father Hidden Toddler. A Zen Guide for New Dads. Not sure about that one. And my favorite is What to Expect When Your Wife is Expanding. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, a book title. I do remember a little bit, faintly, 10, 12 years ago, uh, 11 uh, years ago, remembering getting ready for the birth of our first child and reading one of these books. And I remember the quote from uh, the actor Michael J. Fox on the front of the book said, finally, apparently all these books weren't available back then, but he said, finally, a book that recognizes that the man had something to do with the whole thing. And I read that. I think I was ready. But today we're going to focus on a man who literally had nothing to do with the conception of his child's birth and yet had a lot to do with the circumstances surrounding his birth and his early life. Luke's birth narrative of Christ is focused on Mary. Matthew's is focused on Joseph. It feels at times that we're getting his perspective as we read it. But this is a man who we don't hear a single word of dialogue from as written in the scriptural accounts. And we don't know anything about him after Jesus' 12th year. We see him, he's with Mary as they lose Jesus back in in Jerusalem and they move on without him. But after that, we don't know what happens to Joseph. We assume that he dies before Jesus is crucified. He's not around with Mary. He's not mentioned. And so as we've heard sermons about Mary now, Zechariah, the angels, the shepherds, I thought we'd spend some time with Joseph and see how he fits into the Christmas narrative and what we can learn from his life and his reaction to the events of the incarnation. So let's read. Uh, I've printed on the back, it's, it's, I've expanded the sermon from Matthew 
1, 18 through 25 into chapter 2, pulling out a few verses, verses 13 through 15, and then 19 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so now we skip down to chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. We, in between, the shepherds have come, I mean, the, the wise men, excuse me, have come. Uh, Herod seeks an audience with him, finds out that there's a king that is a threat to him. The wise men continue on and find Christ. And then they leave a different way. And so now we hear Joseph and Mary's response. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Uh, Verses 16 through 18 speak of Herod's sending the order to kill the babies. And verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Someone coming to this text for the first time might be a little confused by the wording. If you noticed in verse 19, Matthew calls Joseph her husband, Mary's husband. Okay, but then verse 20, the angel tells him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. So which is it? Are they married or are they not? Has Matthew made a mistake here? We have to understand the way that Jewish marriages worked at the time. It was a three-step process. The first step was engagement. 
That had nothing to do with a young man getting down on one knee and offering up a ring. The engagement was the two families agreeing to their children being united, formed together. And that usually happened when they were children, when they were young. The arranged marriage. The second step was the betrothal. That was a year-long period of time where the couple lived apart, had no sexual relations, but it was a legally binding agreement pledged in front of witnesses. A divorce was actually required to not go ahead with the wedding. And so this solves a bit of the confusion of this talk of, of husband but not yet wife because we could refer in the betrothal period to husband and wife. But the third step was the marriage itself and then they were truly, fully husband and wife. So here, when we see Mary and Joseph, they are in the second stage of betrothal. And they're sort of married, but they're not physically intimate. And then we find out that Mary is pregnant. And the community collectively gasps when they find out. But Joseph knows the truth. He has not violated social custom or biblical law by sleeping with Mary. He knows this. And Matthew calls him a just man. And I think we can hear two senses of the word just here. He is just in that he follows the law. And he has a good conscience, but he is also just in the sense of wanting to do what is best. And you hear the kindness implied in that. We know that uh, the Jew- Jewish law from Deuteronomy 22, verse 24 said, the penalty for a man sleeping with another's betrothed was that both were stoned if the woman was willing and it was not a rape. Uh, the betrothed woman, both she and her lover, would be stoned. Though We're not sure that that occurred too much in Israel at that time, but we certainly know that they brought an adulterous woman in front of Jesus, so it was not unheard of. Joseph could have had Mary disgraced and expelled from the community. We also know Deuteronomy 24.1 called upon a man to divorce his wife if he finds something indecent about her. And so Joseph realized that this was his duty. And yet he was going to do it as compassionately and honorably as he could. Uh, In verse 19, the Greek word, diagmatizo, means to expose or to humiliate in public. And he does not want to do that. So Joseph determines to quietly break things off. Uh, The righteous man, he wanted a righteous wife. If she had already been unfaithful before they finalized the marriage, what kind of wife would she be? He didn't plan to adopt this child. And he tried to have his noble name kept away from the whole scandal, but in the most compassionate way. But God, we see so often in the scriptures, but God now intervenes and keeps Joseph 
from that plan as just and honorable as it would have been. Joseph receives direct orders from God that he must go through with the marriage and as a consequence, accept the child as his own. I love the Gospels because you just hear echoes of the Old Testament throughout. And and when I think of Joseph here in his dreams, I hear Joseph the patriarch who had dreams that guided him along. Remember the dream of of, uh, his brothers bowing down to him. And then later the dreams that uh, the fates of the other men in prison with him. And then the dream of the seven years of plenty and then seven, seven years of famine. And so we hear echoes of that. And Joseph here has dreams as well. They're a little different though. They are angel visitations. For some reason, the angels have decided to wait until he's asleep to come to him. Whereas everywhere else, it seems like here, Mary is awake when the angel comes. The shepherds are out tending their flocks and the angels appear. But for Joseph, the angel appears when he's asleep. We're looking at three, possibly four dreams. It's hard to tell from the text, but they send Joseph back and forth, telling him exactly what he needs to do. The first one, the big one, he's told, you must take Mary as your wife. Continue on. Don't divorce or don't end your betrothal early. Follow through and call the baby who will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, who has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, call his name Jesus. The second dream, the angel appearance, is that he needs to flee Herod by moving to Egypt. And again, we hear the echoes of the Old Testament because we know that. Egypt, for Israel, is symbolic of suffering and an oppression. And yet now, ironically, it's it's a land of refuge and safety. And Matthew says this is to fulfill Old Testament prophecy from Hosea. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. We see Jesus' genesis and now his exodus. The third angel visitation is then after Herod's death. The the whole family was threatened before that, but now he's dead. The angel says, you can return to the land, to Israel. And then we're not sure if this is the part of that third dream or if there's an extra dream. Joseph's told, well, don't go back exactly where you were headed. You need to avoid Uh, Judea. So he goes to Galilee and they wind up in the city of Nazareth. This must have been very confusing to Joseph. He's thinking we are the parents of the Son of God and he's the one who will save his people from their sins. And we're having all these visits from angels in the sense that God is watching over this whole thing. He's sovereignly moving things forward. But why is it still so dangerous? Why can God not arrange things so we can just stay at home? Why couldn't God have killed Herod and made everything so much easier? Why do we keep having to have these new dreams 
moving us around. Have you thought about that? Maybe he's testing Joseph's resolve. His ability to to lead this new family. His faith in, in God's direction. Maybe the fulfillment of prophecy is so important to God that he has arranged each step of Jesus' early life so that it matches up just as it will throughout his entire life. And have you ever wondered why God involved two people in the virgin birth? I mean, he could have easily used a young girl who was not betrothed or engaged to anyone so that only one person would have been put in this situation and that then people wouldn't have to cast their dispersions and their, their questions on Joseph as well. It's Mary's already born. The shame and the questions that have come from this birth. And now Joseph has been asked to enter into it as well. But Joseph gives Mary her family, the full family, gives Jesus the family that he is going to be in and really lessens Mary's embarrassment. But more importantly than that, than Jesus not having a single mother situation in his early life, more important than just helping and being comfortable in their life is that Joseph gave Jesus his true legal status, that he was descended from the line of King David. If you were here uh, a few weeks ago for my uh, sermon on the genealogy, I, I touched on this as well. That Joseph is a descendant of David. And you notice that, that the angel, when she first appears, says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. I don't think that's how people usually referred to Joseph. He was a descendant, yeah. Very far down the line, and I'm sure there were plenty of descendants of David. I don't think they walked around calling each other Simon, son of David, uh, descendant of David. You'd expect the angel to say, Joseph, son of Jacob. But yet, the angel calls attention to the fact that he is a descendant of David. I think people probably would have called him my woodworker guy, or Joe, Joe the tool man, Right? But Joseph, son of David, reminding him that he is of the, son, the line of David uh, and calling attention to this fact, the Lord had promised in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. So Joseph's adopting Jesus is not a small thing. Without Joseph, Jesus cannot claim David's throne. He cannot fulfill this prophecy. And Jesus becomes the line, part of the line of David, even if he is not of the flesh of David. And now we see, following God's intervention, Joseph's response to this. And as far as we can tell, Joseph responds in obedience immediately, every time, when he has these angel visitations. 
I think this is noteworthy because throughout the scriptures, it's not necessarily the case. You would think if God sent an angel, particularly one that you were so frightened, the angel had to calm you down and say, fear not, that you would respond and obey. But we know Sarah, Abraham's wife, laughed in disbelief that she would be having a son in her 90s. Gideon has an angel of the Lord appear and tell him to save Israel from their enemies, the Midianites. But Gideon doubts so greatly, he, he asks for signs. He doesn't want to do it, so he resists. Jonah resists the word of the Lord, heads the other way. And we've, we've heard in Luke how Zechariah doubted that his wife Elizabeth would be pregnant in an old age with John. And he was stricken mute for it. But Joseph's obedience seems to be automatic. And he does exactly what the angel asks. And I think this is important because of what he's being asked to do. He is entering, first off, he is entering into Mary's scandal and shame. The doubts are transferred from her to him. If, if he leaves, she's the adulterous one, right? But because he stays, everyone's looking on him. Mm. You must have gotten her pregnant. But God has called him to this. And not just for Mary's sake, but for Jesus' sake. And Jesus is the scandal, the scandal on in Greek, the scandal that you must get past to come to faith in Christ. He is offensive to those who do not know him. If we are to enter into his story, we will have to bear some of that shame and that scandal. Not only did he die a criminal's death, but he confronts our world with the things that it doesn't want to hear about. Sin, hell, holiness, and grace. The world would rather not deal with all of those things. Maybe you stumbled over the person and claims of Christ before the Holy Spirit brought you to a saving knowledge and think back to wrestling through those questions. Many of us were brought up in the church and it wasn't as much of a stumbling block. But we often present Jesus as if it, accepting him is the most logical, easiest thing to do. If only we would give you the four spiritual laws, it would click. But he is a stumbling block. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, in the light of Joseph's obedience, are we willing to risk our reputations to follow God? Are we willing to enter into the scandal of who Jesus is and what following him looks like? And that's going to look really different for each of us. I mean, for us pastors, it's, it's pretty easy. It's a done deal already. We've, we've, we've declared that we're Jesus freaks. We're kind of weird. 
Anyways, people just assume, hey, we love to sit around and read 800-page theology books, which we do. We read them to each other sometimes. It's fun. Um, but you see, I see my neighbors. Um, they already think we're weird because we have four kids, and that's crazy, right? But they look over, they find out that I'm a pastor, and you just see the look. We better watch our language here. You know, you don't get invited to the basement poker tournaments after they find out you're the pastor in the in the neighborhood. But for you folks, you're respectable. I think you most of you have respectable jobs and respectable positions in your HOAs and your PTAs. And so you have a choice. Because you can really play this Christianity thing down a little bit. You can say, I'm part of a faith community. Make it sound very innocuous. I'm, I volunteer my time so that my kids will get moral instruction. You can make it sound very non-confrontational. And you can, or you can really let the fact that you believe Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life be known. Now, there are good, sensitive ways to do that. I'm not saying we're looking to offend everyone as thoroughly as we can. But I would say that it's a challenge knowing that we can be rejected for our faith. And yet people come to Christ when they see the boldness of believers who love Jesus and believe no matter what the consequences Imagine what people at your work or in your neighborhood would think if they knew that you not only gave 10% of your money to this church, but you've decided to sacrifice all this other stuff for this campaign. They would know you're nuts if you're putting your money where your mouth is. And if they knew the truth of the gospel, the claims of Christ had so changed your life, you might not look so respectable anymore. We won't be academically respected, respectable if we t- tell people that we believe in a virgin birth and the fact that a peasant's death could make us right with God for all of our sins. Students, college, teens, you know the ridicule that you might face if you truly live a Christian life and enter into the scandal of who Jesus is and become so closely identified with him. All of us have to ask that question. And so a big question is, are you willing to submit to God? I mean, as Christians, we're willing to have Jesus as our Savior. We know that keeps us out of hell, forgives our sins, some really good benefits. But are we really open to having God wreck our lives? Whatever that looks like. I'm reading a a book by Richard Stearns, who's the president of World Vision now. It's called The Hole in Our Gospel. And he talks about being called to World Vision, a call that he resisted almost as thoroughly as he compares himself to Jonah. 
I did not want this. He was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, had had many uh, different positions like that, and somehow World Vision got his name, and he was a layman at his church, had no ministry position, um, but knew a few people who tried to talk him into being the president of World Vision. And he resisted it with all his might. He was praying that he would come in second in the job search constantly. In fact, in the interview, they asked him, you know what World Vision is. They're one of the groups that you can sponsor children through, and they do tons of uh, work with poverty throughout the world. And they, they said, you're going to be, if you take this job, you'll be traveling a lot to foreign countries. You'll be uh, meeting all kinds of people. You'll how, Are you going to be able to deal compassionately and sensitively with poor people whose kids have just died and possibly have AIDS? He said, no way. I don't want to do that at all. I hate being in I'm not. I'm not very comfortable in that. I will not be a, a comforting person in that situation. You should choose someone else. And yet, everything worked out to his being called to world vision. Uh, he had to give up an affluent life. And he did. His family did. But God had called him. And at some point, God might call you. I think God will call us out of our own plans. Maybe not that dramatically, but as he called Joseph, who had set his mind on one course of action and yet was corrected. And God will call you to something that he needs done. How will you respond? Michael Card has a song about Joseph in which he imagines Joseph holding Jesus. And he asks two simple questions that that reveal the irony of this situation. How can a man be father to the Son of God? And then number two, Lord, for all my life I've been a simple carpenter. How can I raise a king? And we see Joseph's, the irony of his situation. I'm the father to the son of God. Ultimately, he is my father. I'm his father. How how can I do this? And we see the paradox of Christ's life. I've taken a lot of this from a professor, Dr. James Anderson, he wrote an article called Christmas Mysteries. And I thought it'd be good to reflect on the, the paradoxes, the contradictions of Christ's life. The first part is the incarnation of the Son, of God the Son. And he says this, he says, the divine became human, the infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent, So all-knowing, all-present, Son of God took upon himself a human nature, finite, limited in power, limited in knowledge, limited in time and space. We're so used to hearing that the Word of God became flesh and that God became a man that it doesn't amaze us anymore. 
but it should. And it probably did to Mary and Joseph. Though we never hear a word from Joseph about it. The second real mystery, paradox of Christ's life is his humiliation. I mean, who would have predicted that if God had come, if God had gone to the incredible lengths that he did to become a human being, that he would have come into a life of obscurity, poverty, and suffering. I mean, surely he would have chosen an important position where people would recognize who he was. Or he would have been that hermit that you had to travel up the mountain to go find to ask for his wisdom, right? But surely not someone so ordinary as a carpenter's son who could have been your next-door neighbor you would have never known. And finally, the paradox of the crucifixion of God the Son. As if being humbled to human form wasn't enough. As if the kind of life, human life that Jesus lived wasn't enough. The finest, highest mystery is that God submitted to being killed for his enemies. A man with no human father, a king who died a criminal's death, a God who assures us of everlasting life in a world to come, while the world he made is consumed by war and strife. Christianity is a religion of perplexing contradictions. But all those who embrace those contradictions and all those who want to be obedient to the call of God on their lives said, Amen. Father God, thank you for the human beings that you placed in the drama of the incarnation. Thank you that you didn't just bring Jesus in isolation as a fully formed man teaching out in the wilderness somewhere, but that you placed him into a human family. God, thank you that we have the rich detail that we have from the Gospels. Thank you that Joseph and Mary responded in faith and obedience and what we can learn from that. Lord, may we respond in obedience to your call on our lives, getting past the scandal and the shame and the difficulties of what you claim that we are separated from you in our natural state, that our sin has separated us, but that you came to bridge that gap, to die for our sins, and to love us. The world does not believe that message. The world hates that message. 
And yet that is the gospel, the free gift to all who would hear it and receive it and be brought to faith. So God, teach us, be with us. Thank you for this Christmas time. In your name we pray. Amen.